The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 7 to 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and faithful servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, and in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nymphia and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. I always have a whole lot of stuff to put up here. Give me a second. Let me get my timer going so Bobby doesn't fight me. Fathers, happy Father's Day. I, um, I want to, at the risk of saying another sermon, there's so much to be said about it, but um, as someone who has been blessed by God's grace in my life to have uh, a father who loves the Lord in my life, um, I also grew up in a place that saw the scars of the abdication of fatherhood in many different places and the scar that that leaves. And so my prayer for our fathers today is that you would worship the Lord for his grace in your life, to take part in the beauty of fatherhood, and that those who might have been scarred by the abdication of fatherhood would remember the words that we were singing in those songs and in our sorrows, Jesus is better, and that his comfort would fall on you and that you have joy to know that you're not fatherless that we all have an eternal father. And as a result, you have siblings who will carry burdens for you. So share it. Share it. Let them pray for you. We are at the end of our series, the Supreme series, with the Supreme graphic because we're cool. And there's a picture at the end of this. This is typically interesting to preach on because it's, there's no commands really. There's no... Uh, it's kind of just like us eavesdropping on Paul talking to some friends and some siblings. But what ends up happening is there's actually a beautiful picture 
that comes as a result of this. And it's a picture of the church. What did I do with my clicker? Oh, here it is. It's a picture of the church. Um, and, and recently, personally, uh, in my own life, but then also as I, I've talked to Christians over the past few years, there's just been this lingering grieving in my heart when it comes to the view of the church. Um, even personally, the Lord has been convicting and growing me in, in, in just the way that I see the church and the things that I say and the way that I think about it. And so that's why I wanted to start with this question as we ponder, how do you see the church? And, I, and I'm, I'm not talking about, like, to reiterate what Thule said, it's not a building. I'm not talking about brick and mortar. I'm talking about the church, the global group collective, the church. What comes to mind when you think about the church? How do you speak about the church in general? Perceptions, what are your perceptions of the church? Do you have things you'd like to change about the church? conversations that I've had with people, the presuppositions, I would say, the preconceived notions, the misunderstandings of who the church is just leaves this very blurry picture of what the church actually is. And I think the blurry picture is the result of very real grievances, very real pains, very real abuse that happens. And then we provide so much or we give so much credit and value to these abuses and these pains that we elevate it and it becomes the defining factor of the church and it leaves this blurry picture that I think we miss an opportunity for the worship of God in a lot of different ways, specifically in contemporary American Christianity. Hi, Hilda. And as a result of this, our pain turns into these prescriptive uh, prescriptions for the church of what ought to change and how this needs to go away or this needs to be added. And those prescriptions are built from our own, I guess, experiences, our own motivations, uh, whatever it is. Uh, We can all have a capacity to take part in this, and I think it's important that we would know it. I recently watched... This documentary on Hulu called, the, I, don't, I don't know what it's called. It's about Hillsong. The Hillsong documentary, I guess it's called. And, you know, obviously, yes, you have the, the surface level uh, narrative of it all. The, the, just the abuse and the moral failure of the pastor. And then the things as you get higher, it gets worse. But the undercurrent of it is what grieved my heart the most. Because the undercurrent of it seems to be a defamation of the church defaming the church. I was listening to the different talking heads, and and not to be flippant about that, they're people, I'm just saying, in the screen you got different people who are given a narrative of their time at Hillsong Church, and um, they all have grievances, and they all have things that they wanted to change about it. They all had things they wanted to see differently, and they didn't happen. And in the culmination of the lack of changes, culminated in 
the pastor's moral failure that finally led them to say, oh, hey, I'm out. And the blurry picture of the church <laughs> that I kept hearing in their speech led me to think, like, man, what, what do you actually believe the church is? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. And my, my question was answered explicitly. The final quote of the entire documentary is a woman saying this. The church is people. The church is community. The church should be people caring about each other. And that honestly doesn't have to do with Jesus, God, or anything else. I think no wonder pain reigns. There's no comforter. There's words for groups of people who seemingly have a motivation to love on each other and love other people. It's either a nonprofit or a cult. Within, when it's Jesusless, without Christ, it's a group of flawed individuals who think they have the power in their own hands to provide comfort and love that people so desperately seek and need. How can you love with a Christless church? John tells us in 1 John 4.19 that we are only loving because he loved us. And so this idea seems to be that the church is just another altruism factory. You got to do good stuff and you do it well. And I think this is the model of a Christless church, or at least a church not centered on Christ. And it brings back to mind that question, how do we see the church? I want to bring our minds back to Colossians 3 that we saw some sermons ago. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. And I want you in this time, I mean, flip some pages with me. Flip some pages with me. There are Bibles on your pews. Click some buttons with me. You got Bibles on your phone. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. One of the grievances in this documentary, sorry to be a spoiler for people who would want to watch it. It's garbage though, man. But one of the grievances was the representation. There were too many white people up front. And so the pastor, Carl Lentz, I'm going to be gratuitous. I'm going to say out of loving his flock. I don't know him. There's no need for me to slander that decision. I think out of hearing and loving his flock, he, he made a decision and, and made sure that there were black people up front. And then someone came back to him and said that that woman has a white husband. Dr. A.C. Dixon says this in a Colossians commentary. When we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. 
When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do and so on. And I'm not disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. Our minds are to be set in the heavenly places. There are things down here that, yes, it's good, and it's good to do good, and it's good to do it well. But where does your hope lie when it comes to your view of the church? And is your view a down here view? Or is it an up there view? There's messiness down here. There's radiance up there when it comes to the church. How do we view it? Books and titles will fail you. But when Jesus is the author and perfecter of the faith and recognized as such, and his supremacy is recognized as such, the church is radiant. Radiant. It's through the eyes of Jesus, the church is his beautifully and divinely created bride. And I want you to remember this. A bride for whom he spilled his blood. Is that our view? There's significance there. It's through this lens that we should see the church. In this passage, the end of Paul's letter to to the Colossians, you're seeing so much happen in such little space when it comes down to the beauty of the church. Paul had sent a letter to this church where it's like, hey, people are lying out here. Don't believe these lies. And these are the guys that are lying. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. Stay away from those things and actually stay the course. Stay the course of being the church. Don't worry about this stuff right here. Don't place your hope on it. Don't define yourselves by it. Don't define the church by it. Be up here. And then he comes to the final thing that we're going to look at today. I promise we're going to get there. I just, my heart's grieved. I'm running out of space here. And so in this passage, we're going to see the beauty in two major ways that I think, man, my Lord, it's good for us. We see her beauty and its unity and her diversity. Very popular topics today. There's beauty in being diverse. There's beauty being a diverse, forgiving, and sacrificial church. I see that beauty here. But to have an eternal mindset is to know that beauty is hidden in Christ and Christ alone. And he so graciously has called upon us to have us be the ones that shines through. So let's stay the course at being who we are. But in order to be who we are, we need to know what we are and why we are. So quick overview of the church just to dispel any misconceptions. What is the church? Not a building. We've said this. New Testament descriptions come with either the body of Christ, the temple of God, the bride of Christ, the people of God. The thing that links them all is that there is one body of Christ, one temple of God, one bride of Christ, one people of God. Inherently unifying, yet diverse, as God himself is. Is the church exclusive? Yes. Every single person is welcome. But in the bride of Christ, there's only one groom. No other grooms are welcome. Whether it be another religion, another God, 
another person that you're putting your hope in, a career. Whatever it is you'd like to bring as a groom, no, that groom is a failure. It will fail you and disappoint you. Only the true good groom is welcome. That's what makes it the bride. Jesus Christ. It's not a polyamorous relationship. This isn't bachelorette. And the beauty of this bride is that the bridegroom has declared her perfect. Very hard for us to grasp on this side of eternity because it's like, nah. Forensically, yes. And our identity, yes. Everyone who trusts in Christ declared perfect, righteous. And the perfection isn't attained by our own hands. It's attained by the hands or the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His life lived to God, pleased God perfectly. His death to serve as an atoning sacrifice, both cleansing of our sins and satisfying God's righteous wrath that's owed to us. And his resurrection as the hope to come where death itself dies. And we are raised in true perfection to the praise of his glory. And those who don't trust the Lord will see the bride and say, wow. And what an honor it is to solicit that wow on this side of glory. But why? Why leave us here in this brokenness? Why not call us, declare us perfect, and then bring us home? Turn with me to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 1. Paul says this, I'm going to read to verse 10. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now made, been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's non-Jews. It's not just the Jews. The world. Fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Listen to this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's fancy theological speech to say that man there's a real enemy in this world, and it doesn't dwell in flesh and blood. It's spiritual. But it looks to influence flesh and blood, and then we experience pain in flesh and blood. But in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this abuse, in the midst of this lying, in the midst of this murder, in the midst of this whatever it is we're doing to one another, there's going to be a collective of people who will be hurt and forgive. 
There's going to be a collective of people who hide in the dark and sin and confess. There's going to be a collective of people who are stricken with diseases and worship. Also that they can proclaim to the heavenly powers, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. You lose. The church, sins are cleansed, identity is shredded and replaced with perfection, dividing walls of hostility torn down, hardships exist, yet comfort will take place. The church, made through Christ, lives for Christ, and will be presented to Christ. There is no other reason for the bride to be the bride. She is, after all, the one for whom he shed his blood. So God to display his power wants his church to shine brightly while darkness lurks. Man, what a way to think about it. On this side of eternity is the only time we get to rejoice in the midst of pain. The only time. When Christ returns, pain is gone. So why on earth would pain still exist? It's to tell somebody something. The Lord wants the beauty of his church to tear down the ugliness of this fallen world. And we see all of that taking place in Colossians 4. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in our passage now. We look through this in 7 through 18. I want to highlight the unity that is seen. Unity is such a, whew, I think it's a lost on us term. As a society, I think unity involves agreement, um, perfect agreement where we all agree. It involves uh, um, homogeny. Uh, it, it's just, it, it, that's not what it is. Unity is an active thing. It's, it's an active decision. Also, the Christ, the bride of Christ is not unified because of decisions we've made. Although we are to be intentional in unity, the bride of Christ is unified already through Christ. We are unified now. Arguments that Paul makes in the New Testament is like, hey, why are you acting like this when you are this? You are unified. He's not saying, hey, you need to act like this so you can be in unity. No, we're unified now. And we see that here. Tishicus, listen to these words just throughout, peruse this passage. Tishicus is a beloved brother and fellow servant. Onesimus, a beloved brother. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, they're fellow workers. Luke, a beloved physician. Epaphras, working hard for you. Brothers and sisters at Laodicea, letters to be read between churches. We have a church that is in a different city that is, Paul is saying, hey, make sure they read this letter and make sure you read the letter that they got. We don't have that one, by the way, but this, the beauty of this, I love that. That's something I've been trying to, to grow towards in student ministry, have the students of our church rub elbows with believers of other churches in student ministry, to be in connection with sister churches in the area who see Jesus as supreme, that we would link arms and displaying beauty in the midst of darkness. Unity. We aren't trying to be unified. We are 
unified. So we ought to stay the course in this unity. But then we also see diversity. There's beauty in our differences. I think diversity is a very beautiful thing, and, and a lot of its beauty has been stripped away to just merely multicolored, especially in our context, American contemporary church. But there's, there's far more beauty in, in diversity. As a matter of fact, there's, there's beauty in diversity because of the fact that we're unified, different people, different backgrounds, maybe even different desi- uh, desires, all saying, but not I. The Christ who lifts me. We look through this passage, just look at some positional diversity. You have a letter carrier, and then you got the guy that's just walking with the letter carrier. Tishikus is carrying the letter. He's a messenger. Onesimus is just rolling with him. I'll roll with you. I'll go. You have prayer warriors and Epaphras who's just sitting and covering the church in prayer, striving for the sake of the bride. You have hospitality in Nympha. She owns a home that the church is meeting in. I wanted to highlight these things, maybe not the messenger unless any letter carriers in here sending letters to churches, but when we think about prayer warriors and hospitality, do we not see that here? Do we not have people praying and striving for us every week? Do we not have people who just find it beautiful to be able to create spaces that are beautiful? People who house community groups. I think about uh, uh, the, the, the work that it takes to be hospitable. Something that's very intricate in person who is, 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 has zeal in hospitality is they like making spaces beautiful. That's an attribute of our Father. In Genesis, it says that he made trees that were just good to look at. For what? Because beauty is good. It's, be- it's, it's beautiful. I'm always blown away whenever we have something, uh, something outside or something next door, and, and you have women who have, like, find sticks and some string, and before you know it, it's some house that's made outside. I'm like, how did you do that? Make spaces beautiful, house people, invite people and welcome them in. I'm grateful for community leaders who house people, 3D leaders who house people. The positional diversity made me think about Exodus 36. I'm just going to reference it. You can turn and, and gloss through it to see what I'm talking about. In Exodus 36, you have the making of the tabernacle. And God instructed certain people to do the building. And then the rest of the people were to bring materials. And there was so much zeal to do their part that they had a surplus. And Moses had to say, hey, stop bringing stuff, man. We got too much stuff. People carrying heavy things, people carrying string and purple and uh, linens. People carrying materials that would just be very small details in this tabernacle, yet it contributed to the beauty of where God would dwell. We have diversity in unity. Paul says Onesimus, and he says, who is one of you? 
which is very interesting. Obviously, Onesimus is a believer. We see that in Philemon, but Onesimus is from Colossae. So most of these people in this church are from Colossae. That's not really diverse unless we see diversity as it is. Onesimus is also a former slave. Not everybody in there is former slaves. That's more positional diversity. Cultural diversity. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, he comes to you. Welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Paul is saying, man, these are the only Jews. With a background of Jewishness. And he's not saying it in comparison to the Gentiles in the church. He's saying that to the, in comparison to the rest of the Jews who have heard the gospel and have chose to reject it. These are the only ones. It's both a, a, a rejoice that they're there with him in the fight and in and, and the mourning. There's a mourning and a grievance of heart there. Because these are the only ones. These are the only ones. Positional, ethnic, cultural. You see circumstantial diversity as well. In that same passage in 10, Paul says that Mark greets him. There was a falling out between Paul and Mark and Barnabas. And that's been repaired. I think circumstantial diversity is something that we often try to circumvent or avoid, but it contributes to the beauty, conflict, and the way we respond when Jesus is supreme contributes to the beauty of the bride of Christ. So we are the church not because we do good things like Jesus did good things, and we're not the church because the good things that we do like Jesus did are helpful. We're the church because we are the ones for whom Jesus shed his blood and we are powered by a spirit to live lives that reflect his goodness, righteousness, and kingship. And also, the world is better when we are the church. So this is how we ought to respond. Two options. We either live within that beauty or we tear it to shreds. We either see the church as she is, as she is forensically, as she will be, and live within it, or we bring our own kingdom, our other grooms, and we tear it to shreds. How do we live within the beauty? One, you contribute to the beauty. Oh, that's wrong. You contribute to the beauty. You can contribute your gifts. Gifting is, is talked about in a very interesting way. I, just, I, 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 pretty, I really hope you hear me here. Every single one of you sitting here has a gift. 
I think sometimes we put unnecessary attention on certain things. But all of it ought to glorify God, and that ought to be our desire with whatever it is. Every single one of you has a gift. Contribute it. Contribute your time. Recognizing that time is given to us by the grace of God. Our devotion to his bride, our devotion to our families glorifies him. Make sure Jesus reigns supreme in that decision. That also guards you against having to be abused over time. Don't let man dictate what you do with your time. Let the Lord do it. But contribute to the beauty of the church. Also, you contribute that beauty through self-denial. Love is always self-denying. Just always is. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says in Philippians 2 that you should always, paraphrase, you should always look at the person standing across from you and say, you are the most important person in the world, no matter who it is. Another way that we live within the beauty is we preserve the beauty. This entire letter is Paul being a protector over the beauty of the church. Somebody is looking to rip the beauty to shreds with these lies that they're telling you. They're lies. We preserve the beauty by protecting against false teaching and teaching what is true. We protect against the beauty by telling people about predators. That's controversial until people are left to fend for themselves at the hand of predators. Then we all see the harm that it does. We confront with the scriptures, with the truth, with bringing things to light. And in the midst of doing all this stuff with our gifts and with our time and our self-denial and our protection against lies and our protection against liars, we must, above all else, put on love. Colossians 2, 13 which we read a few sermons earlier. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We need to know this in order for us to live as the bride of Christ, to know that the perfection that you have attained is not of your own doing. You were dead in your trespasses, and God made you alive. What does that afford you to do to your neighbor? Grant patience. Grant grace. Grant forgiveness. Very popular wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13, talks about what love is. It's patient. It's kind. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Let this be the clothing that the bride wears. That we would live within the beauty and not rip it to shreds. So stay the course is what this is saying. Be the church 
the grievances that are very real that people have that I myself have endured aren't grievances against the church. They were against people. It's our view of the church and of Jesus' supremacy that dictates how we engage those grievances. Why on earth would you want to forgive someone who has hurt you when there is no king of forgiveness who has forgiven you? Why on earth would you want to wrestle through dying to self and your emotions and your thoughts and your anger and your hatred when there is no king who died for you? But if that king is a king over his church, then live within that beauty and contribute to it. So if there are things that you'd like to change about the church, the things that are dishonoring to God and reject scripture, I stand with you. I stand with you. But if there are things that are divinely created attributes about the church that she's called to live in, and those are the things that bother us, then we need to reorient our view of Jesus as the supreme one. That will then reorient our view of his bride. I didn't plan on sharing this story, but since my father said, I'll embarrass him. I was a very rare teenage boy. I was disrespectful to my mother. It's very rare. <laughs> and I remember one or twice, but I remember the first time it happened. I was just very disrespectful in my tone, in my speech towards my mother. And my father pulled me up, and he didn't reprimand me for being a son that's disrespecting his mother. He reprimanded me for talking to his bride that way. That's my wife, boy. What is your view of the church? Do you have slander in your heart toward her? Is it a very low, degrading view of her? Every Sunday, we're reminded of what Jesus did for his bride. His body was broken, that she would be made whole. His blood was spilled, that she would be cleansed and declared perfect. We remind ourselves of this for our own hearts, personally, that the gospel would rest in our own hearts and Jesus would reign supreme in our own hearts, but we also are reminded of this collectively that we would have an eternal view of the church so that whenever our view drops beneath where it ought to be, be reminded through the broken body and the blood, that's my bride you're talking about. Let's take, eat, and remember. Remember.